Matthew 2, 1 through 12. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired with them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen, it rose, went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with grateful joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 2. Welcome again and Merry Christmas, Happy uh, New Year, uh, all those uh, things that we're supposed to say at this, uh, at this time. Uh, glad that you are here uh, this morning. Uh, truly, though, we do hope you had a, a, a Merry Christmas. Um, and we know that uh, Christmas is, is, is past. We, we do know that. I know some of you are still kind of on a, uh, a proverbial Christmas day. Uh, if you have multiple family, like you keep celebrating, kind of extend the holiday. Uh, but, but the day of remembrance of the birth of Jesus uh, has passed. And uh, with the passing, we may tend to move on uh, from the, the Christmas story altogether. I was just talking to my father-in-law uh, yesterday, and he had... Uh, heard that uh, one of his sisters was shopping, and they said that they already have stuff for spring uh, out in the stores uh, for people to to buy more more things, because that's what we all need to be doing is buying more things uh, <laughs> four days after Christmas. So, um, but one of the reasons I think that we might move on so quickly, uh, there's probably many many reasons, uh, but is for one because we sometimes conflate the Christmas story, uh, that is the birth of Jesus, with other stories related to his birth. So uh, one of the easiest and obvious is if you have a nativity in your house, uh, it conflates the the birth of Jesus with the event that we just read uh, for you just a few moments ago. Uh, The wise men, we know, did not come to the place where Jesus was born. They were not at the manger. Right? That, that is not part of the Christmas story, but it conflates those stories. And so when we celebrate Christmas, we celebrate it as one big kind of compilation, this uh, amalgamation of stories all wrapped up, and then we, then we move on. Uh, the problem with that is, is, is this. Um, one is that the Christmas story happened on a particular night, but then the angels went away, then the shepherds went back to the flock, then the sun came up, right? And actually, the story starts to unfold from there. 
to wrap it all up into one ball is to minimize this unfolding of the story. And so what we want to do to, to this morning is to look at Matthew chapter 2. And, and what we find is that the baby who is Jesus is now at least aged to some degree, months, maybe up to a year. Um, and that this baby, this son of God, is actually impacting more than just that Christmas night. That his impact actually reaches beyond just the shepherds and Mary and Joseph. And he actually reaches even further, hundreds or thousands of miles away. In fact, his coming demands a response. It did then, and it still does today. Not just his, his birth, the literal birth. It's not just that we acknowledge this birth, but we ask, what does it mean? See, the most important question that, that we have to deal with in humanity is what, what do we do with Jesus? Again, not just acknowledging that he exists, not just acknowledging that he was born, but what, we, what do we do with who he is, who he says he was? Christmas actually confronts us and demands of us a response to who this child actually is. What does the coming even mean? So Christmas is that he came. Amen. God with us. Amen. Well, why did he come? And what does that mean for you and for me? How does that impact us? How does it affect us? How does it change us? How should we respond? Well, in Matthew's gospel, chapter 2, he details for us two responses of the coming of Jesus. The two responses we see are one by the wise men and the second by the wicked ruler named Herod. So we're going to take it that way. Take it as looking at the wise men and then take it as looking at Herod. So in the first verse, we see this. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod. So first we find that there are... Um, there's a, a timing here that Matthew indicates after Jesus was born. Right? So it wasn't the night he was born. This was after he was born. And we come to find out it was, it was sometime after Jesus was born. Uh, additionally, Matthew sets the, the timing of as in the days of Herod. That kind of marks a historical marking. Uh, we'll talk about Herod in a minute. And then he names the place in Bethlehem of Judea. Uh, Bethlehem was six miles south of Jerusalem. Just in your mind, if you, if you want to try to see a little bit of uh, geography, six miles south of Jerusalem. And this Judea is going to come back up again in Matthew's account. We'll see it in a few verses. And he says, behold, and we talked about this last week, behold, this word behold means pay attention. Uh, look at this, look closely. Behold, what happens? Wise men. Wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Some of your Bibles might have a footnote for wise men that says magi. And they get the word magi from the word magician. Right? So uh, again, we've talked about ma magicians uh, in the book of Acts. And we don't uh, need to not, not think of that quite the same way we think of uh, magicians uh, today. Uh, but here it's talking about really astrologers. Uh, people who studied the stars. That's who these wise men were. Daniel chapter 5, verse 11, uh, we see uh, these men as well. Uh, they were not necessarily kings. There's no indication in the scriptures that they were kings, uh, nor were there said to be three. 
So despite what, uh, what, what, what our, what our hymn, hymnology tells us, um, we, we don't have any uh, indication that it's three, uh, nor were they kings. Um, certainly the, the reason for those are um, a bit of conjecture, and we understand why we draw some of those conclusions, uh, but we ought to be uh, somewhat careful about that. Uh, what we do know about the position that these men would have had is that it would have been a prominent, uh, high-ranking uh, a position of power, a position of influence. They would have been rel- well-respected. They would have had roles in politics and in religion. Uh, from their gifts, which we heard read already, we'll talk about it in a few minutes, we can tell that they were apparently wealthy. Uh, those types of gifts were, were not uh, cheap. Uh, they probably did not travel alone. And so we, though we um, hear of wise men in the plural, certainly there very well could have been more than just uh, a few men, we don't, we don't know. And it says that they came from the east. Uh, coming from the east certainly is not an exact location, uh, so we don't know how far they traveled, but uh, some commentators say that they could have traveled up to thousands of miles, uh, potentially, uh, to, to come uh, to see Jesus. And they come uh, to Jerusalem, which is where you think that you probably would go, to the capital city if you're going to find uh, someone who was royalty, or someone who was a king. And so they come there, and so they're seeking him out in verse 2, and they say, uh, where is he who is born king of the Jews? For we saw the star when it rose and have come to worship him. Um, we saw the star when it rose. Some of your Bibles have the word in the east, which is not the best rendering there. Uh, the, the, the star wasn't in the east. The men came from the east. Uh, they came west, so the star in the east wouldn't work, wouldn't work out right. So they came to the west uh, from the east. Uh, the star rose, and they followed it, and it led them west, and it led them, and they came to the city of Jerusalem, and they begin asking this question, and it's this continual question. They're, they're saying, they're, they're going around asking people, where, where is this one who is born king of the Jews? We saw the star. We're here to worship. Where is he? King of the Jews. The next time this is used in the book of Matthew is in Matthew 27. You might remember that narrative where Jesus stands before Pilate. He says, you're, you're, you're the king of the Jews. That's the next time this is used. Interesting. Huh? So after they converse, we'll look at verses 7 and 8 later. Uh, with Herod, the wise men traveled towards Bethlehem. And we read these ver- words in verse 9. Pick it up with me in verse 9. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose uh, went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Uh, Verse 9 says that as they traveled, so they're they're leaving Jerusalem, they're headed down towards Bethlehem. And uh, they, they see this star, and it guides them to the place where Jesus was. Um, 
There's a lot that we could make maybe about the star. Again, a lot of conjecture on what the star actually was. Was it a literal star? What, was it a supernova? Like what, what, what was this thing? Uh, we can understand this, that it was, it was supernatural. It was not a normal uh, occurrence. Uh, in the Old Testament, we find in the book of Exodus chapter 13, that Israel was led by a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. That's how God led his people to the promised land. Matthew Henry says that the wise men were led by a star to the promised seed. The promised seed who is what Revelation 22 calls the bright and morning star. And so whatever the star was, uh, divinely, supernaturally, it reappeared from when it brought them from the east. It reappeared and brought them to, to Bethlehem. Um, we need to note, though, that these men, these men were not Jewish. They were non-Israelites. They were pagans who saw this star, they saw the light, and followed it with the intention of worshiping the king of the Jews. On the whole of the Bible, we kind of, kind of peel back out and look at the Bible again from kind of a more macro view. Uh, we find that the Old Testament prophesied of the nations coming to worship this one. Ultimately, we know that this will happen one day when every tongue and every tribe will bow and uh, every language will bow in worship. The, the coming of the wise men uh, pictures for us this time when the nations that have been prophesied by people like Isaiah, when the nations come to, to worship. One writer says that we see the nations would come drawn to the light of God's Son. Right? And that's what the light does. Right? That's what the light of the gospel does. That's the light of Jesus draws us in. Jesus, in fact, is the light of the world. He is the light to the Gentiles. When we were studying the book of Acts, we saw that. Acts chapter 13, verse 47, again saying that the gospel, this Jesus, is, is the light. He is, he is turning on the lights. He's giving sight to those who don't know in order for them to see who he is. So they're led by the star and they come to the place and they're rejoicing in verse 10. And then in verse 11, they went into the house, uh, not a manger, a house, uh, and they saw the child. And we see that they do this. They fall down. So there's a physical posture that they take. Uh, they worship. Right? That says something about their heart and their intention. And then they offer gifts. So they bring a material expression of their worship. Not just words, not just posture, but they actually offer him something. Uh, these gifts we find are gifts that, that, are, that are fit for a king. Right? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They're, they're superior gifts. They are gifts that you would give uh, to someone uh, in this, uh, who is a king. Now, <clears throat> one thing we want to be careful of here in what we're about to do. The Bible does not make for us the correlations between what exactly these gifts represent. Okay, uh, The Bible doesn't do that. It tells us what they were, and now we can, with our understanding of what the gifts were, how the gifts were used, what those kind of things were associated with, uh, make some understanding of, of what they might be emphasizing about this child. So I want to be clear that, that the Bible isn't making these specific connections. Uh, we're making possible connections based on what it is and what we know of who Jesus is. But when they give him gold, we could possibly see that this is emphasizing Jesus' royalty. 
that as they brought this gold to him and offered it to this child, they were saying, this child is king. This child is royalty. Gold was associated with royalty. In the book of 1 Kings chapter 10, Solomon, one of the ways that his wealth is described is in the, the amount of gold that he had. And it is associated uh, with royalty. Matthew's gospel stresses the idea of the kingship of Jesus. So it would seem right that he might use something like this. And the wise men here seem to be recognizing that this Jesus is royal. He is king. Secondly, frankincense. <clears throat> frankincense emphasizes Jesus' deity. The reason we might conclude that is because frankincense, of how frankincense was used in the Old Testament, frankincense was used to worship and to serve uh, or in the service of God. In the, in the tabernacle, that's actually where it was stored. That was what it was used for. So as we think about this, this fragrance or this oil being presented to, uh, to Jesus, it's saying something about who Jesus is. That he is one to be worshipped. He is God. He is deity. And thirdly, myrrh. Myrrh emphasizes Jesus' humanity. Uh, why do we say that? Well, myrrh was a perfume which was associated uh, with anointing. And you might remember at the end of Jesus' life, actually after Jesus was uh, dead, uh, in John chapter 19, when they take his body down, Nicodemus is there, um, and they, they have with them myrrh to anoint his, his body and prepare it for the tomb. So in all three of these gifts, we, we can see how these gifts are pointing to something that's true about this child, something that the Bible would go on to affirm all of those three things, that in fact he was. In fact, he was royalty. In fact, he, he was deity. And in fact, he was humanity. So after worshiping Jesus, the wise men, picked up in verse 12, being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to a... a their own country by another way. So upon seeing the star, these wise men come. They find Jesus. Uh, seeing him, they humbly humbled themselves, worshiped and offered him gifts. That was the response that the wise men had upon hearing and seeing Jesus. That's the first response. But Matthew also details for us another response. It's the response of the wicked ruler named Herod. Verse 3. So we're going to kind of go back through this, starting in verse 3. When Herod heard the news, heard this, uh, that's the birth of the king of the Jews, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. So here in verse 3, we meet uh, the king at the time, was King Herod, or Herod the Great, if you're keeping track of your Herods in the Bible. Uh, this is Herod the Great. Uh, he is said to be an Edomite, which we'll get to in just a moment. Um, he was known for his falsehood and for his cruelty. So here uh, we find that, that when he hears about this king, right? So he's king, right? And then he hears that there's a birth of a king. Uh, the Bible tells us that he is troubled. And if you were the king and you heard about a, another king being born, you might be troubled too, right? Now this idea of being troubled is the idea of being agitated or being in distress, in turmoil, stirred up. He wasn't feeling very good about this announcement of a baby. Uh, we also find that all Jerusalem with him, that's what it says there, and all Jerusalem with him, they were troubled too. That should 
catch us a little off guard there. Um, Jerusalem should have been waiting for their Messiah, right? They, they should have been looking for this one who f- would fulfill the Old Testament prophecy that they say they believe. And here he comes, and they miss it. They're actually troubled by it. They're actually troubled by it. They, they don't even see it right in front of them. And even still today, there are many in the, in the, the Jewish community that are, are missing their Messiah. And not just, not just the Jewish people. Guess what? He's your Messiah too. And there's many today that are missing him as well. Standing right in front of you as you read the Bible is Jesus. Christmas is, is this grand sign that, that Christ has come. And so many people go through this season and totally miss Jesus in all of it. How you can even understand the story of Christmas at all and miss Jesus is a miracle <laughs> to some degree. And yet here, here these people miss it as well. But we said that Herod was troubled uh, because he was the king, and so, or so he thought he was. Um, the Old Testament actually prophesied that there was one who was coming that was going to rule. Uh, li- listen to this prophecy in Numbers chapter 24. This is Balaam's first oracle, or final oracle, excuse me. He says this, I see, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheath. Edom shall be dispossessed. Sire, which is another word for Edom, also his enemies shall be dispossessed. Israel is doing valiantly. And the one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of cities. Ultimately, that prophecy was not fulfilled at the first coming of Jesus. Right? That actually didn't happen at the first coming of Jesus, did it? Ultimately, that happens in the days, days to come. Right? That happens Revelation chapter 19, verse 20. But the first advent, the coming of Jesus, is saying that the prophecies are coming true. That what God has promised is going to happen is coming true. Jesus said, behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. It's not in full yet, but it's at hand. It's coming. And the, the first coming of Jesus, Christmas, is telling us that God's promises are coming true. Verse 4 through 8 tells us what Herod did next. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So... Um, so he hears this news. He's troubled. What does he do? He, he gathers some people. We, hear, we see here chief priests who were teachers and scribes who were people who studied the law. And he, he gets them together and he inquires of them where the Christ is to be born. Do you hear what I just said? Where the Christ was to be born. That's what he inquired about. Herod inquired where the Christ was born. Who said anything about Christ? We said the king of the Jews. The king of the Jews was associated with the Christ or the Messiah. What's the point? The point is that Herod knew. Herod knew there was a Messiah coming. Herod knew that this was going to happen. He knew that there was one who's who's said to come and rule and to reign. And if you're a ruler, you like that prophecy? No, you don't like that prophecy. 
You don't like the idea that someone's going to take over your rule? He knows about this rule. And so he, he inquires where the Christ is to be born. And so they tell him, and they, they use a, a, a prophecy from Micah chapter 5, verse 2, in Bethlehem of Judea, so, for so it is written of the prophet. This is verse 5, now verse 6. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not but are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So Herod, because of his concern, he gathers these people, he's asking a question, where is this birth take place? I want to know where this is at. I, 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 I want to know the location of where this little baby king was born. And so they tell him, based on prophecy, that it's in Judea. Right? It's in Bethlehem. And the significance of Bethlehem is, is there, there is significance here. Um, Bethlehem was, was small, though important. That's good for us to know. Uh, additionally, this, this word Judea, we said would come up again. That connects him to David. In the genealogies in chapter 1, we see that same connection with, with David. This word Judah is mentioned three times. And the reason that it's significant is only a member of the tribe of Judah could qualify for the throne of David. And so to say that this one who was born was from the tribe of Judah is to say that he actually is qualified to fulfill the prophecy that Isaiah, Micah have prophesied about. See the importance of these things. And then he says, he will be a shepherd of my people. And that goes back to 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 2. It says, this one who would rule would also be a shepherd. As we read the Gospel of John a little bit further, chapter 10, we find out that Jesus is called the good shepherd, isn't he? In fact, he was, and he is. He's not only the shepherd, but he is the ruler. He is the king. And when asked by, by Herod, so the Jews offer the location, uh, but then they do that based on Scripture. But then he asks about the time. Look at it in verse 7. Then Herod summons the wise men secretly, and ascertain from them what time the star had appeared. So he's getting location, and now he's getting time, right? So he's trying to track this thing down. He's trying to get a window here to, to what he's about to, to do. And what do they, uh, they must have told him the timing. It doesn't give us that in verse 7. But after getting the necessary information, Herod, Herod suggests this. He kind of feigns kindness here and says, um, Go and search diligently for the child. This is verse 8. And when you have found him, bring word that I too may come and worship him. Uh, Matthew Henry says, The greatest wickedness often conceals itself under a mask of piety. Whoa, I'll read that again. The greatest wickedness often conceals itself under the mask of piety. And here, that's what Herod's doing. I'll, I'll worship him. Let, let me know where he's at so I can, I can worship him too. But without jumping to conclusions. Now, that's, that's a dangerous thing to do, right? Is to jump to conclusions. We're not jumping to conclusions because Matthew actually records Herod's real heart here, his real intentions. Jump down to verse 16 with me. It says, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, that's they went a different way, right? They didn't, they didn't talk to him verse, uh, back in verse 12. He became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all that region, and in all that region, who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from 
the wise men. So verses 16 and 17 portray for us what Herod actually was. He was a tyrant. He was a jealous murderer who ordered the killing. Just, just hear that again. He ordered the killing of all male children two years old and under in Bethlehem and in all that region. It's amazing. We actually come to find out that, that Jesus was probably around a year old. And so to, to overshoot two years old and down is like um, unnecessary wickedness, right? That's like overkill on how wicked this man actually was. But we find that God spared Jesus. Jump back up a couple verses to verse 13. I know we're kind of going out of order, but stick with me. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there till I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. That's Hosea chapter 2, verse 15. Even his fury, even this this anger, even this um, desire for death was a fulfillment of Scripture. Look at it, verse 17. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. This is Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 15. A voice was heard in Ramah. That's five miles north of Jerusalem, weeping in loud lamentations, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Jeremiah chapter 31 is detailing the exile to Babylon that the Israelites went through. And Jeremiah is saying that that, that, uh, Rachel, uh, kind of portraying the women of Israel, were weeping for their children who had been taken into exile and considered no more. Basically, they, they, were, they were dead. They were considered dead. And their, their weeping is expressed here, or this, this, uh, this prophecy is used, Matthew uses it, to indicate the, the weeping and the sorrow of the mothers here in Bethlehem and the surrounding regions who were weeping for the loss of their children, their male children, as they were taken in exile to wipe out the people of God. So these young men, young boys, young babies were eliminated because they were a threat to the king. Herod says, um, Matthew says that Herod had, had all the male children two and under killed. Um, we don't know what the total number of that would even be. Right? We can understand that at that time, Bethlehem had something um, it, it's estimated that the population of Bethlehem was about 1,000 people. Uh, so some have calculated that that's maybe 10 or 20 families that lost children. But when it says in all the, the region, then, then we're talking about outside of just Bethlehem proper too. So this is, this is uh, tragic, right? This is a mass, a mass killing, uh, seemingly to, to leave no doubt, right? That's kind of the point, uh, to, to squash any chance that this prophecy might come to fruition. Herod thought he was king. He thought he was going to stop the plan of God, (laughs) right? 
That, that's, that's what he believed. That's why he did what he did. And yet we know, as we read the scriptures, as Matthew details for us, that God's plan was not thwarted by the likes of Herod. God actually saved his son from Herod in order that that son might give hope to the world. Hope to those families who are dealing with loss, the loss of their babies. That that, that son would live a life and die a death in order that there could be life after this for those who would believe. So though this is tragic, the loss of all these babies, what we know is that the baby that was saved became the hope of all families with children, all death, all loss. Herod was concerned about protecting his own kingdom. Right? He, he wanted power and he didn't want anyone else to take it. And he was willing to eliminate any perceived threat, real or perceived for that matter. But this was, this was not new to Herod, by the way. If, if we know anything about Herod, uh, Herod was a bad, he was a bad guy. Uh, he had actually, let me just read this from a, a commentator. Herod was uh, about 70 years old at this time. So um, an infant uh, king, <laughs> two years old or younger, uh, would have likely never actually been a bother to him, right? If you think about it that way, he's 70. That, that baby is never actually going to rival him in his, his actual power. Um, but we also find that he was not overly fond of children uh, or his own children. Uh, he had killed two of his own sons and another he killed five days before he himself died. So what we kind of come to find out about Herod is it's, he just was brutal. And he, he would kill, that, that's just because he, he had a lust for pride and he wanted... Um, to have it his way, to gratify himself, this is the kind of treatment he uh, gave to other people. You may say, that sounds so outrageous that he would kill babies or he would kill his son. Like, what in your heart would ever happen that would lead you to kill someone? Why do people kill each other? That would never, like, we could never do that. We can't understand that, we think. Listen to James chapter 4. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. What Herod did is the natural response to the human heart not getting what it wants. All the way to the, the greatest length of actually taking someone's life, actually murdering someone. He would go to great lengths to defend what he valued most. That's idolatry. That's the essence of idolatry. If you're willing to kill to keep what you have, if you're willing to, to sin in order to have your fill in the blank, you have an idol problem. And Herod clearly had an idol problem. Christmas confronts us as it demands for us to respond to this Jesus, to examine who or what we are worshiping. If we see Jesus, as Herod did, as a threat to our, our life or our way of life, then we'll seek to eliminate him. Right? If you look at Jesus and what Jesus said in the Bible as something that, that's against you and taking something away from you, then your response will be to eliminate it in any way possible. Ignore it, 
justify why it's untrue, why the Bible is a bunch of stories, why Christians are hypocrites, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Any way to eliminate this Jesus. But if you see Jesus as not the one who takes from you, but the one who gives life, then your response will be worship. Look at this God who loves me so much. Look at all the, the good that God has done. Now, Timothy Keller says it this way. Either you'll have to kill Jesus or you'll have to crown him. But the one thing you can't do is just say, what an interesting guy. His claims don't allow that type of answer. When we think about responding to Christmas, really we mean how we're responding to Jesus. As we boil down our responses, really it comes down to two responses. Either you kill him or you crown him. Either you eliminate him or you acknowledge who he is. When we say crown him, we mean to submit to him. We mean to bow our knee to him, as the wise men did. And as Philippians chapter 2 tells us, there's coming a day when everyone will bow the knee. You may say, I'm not bowing my knee to him. Friend, one day you will. But you won't bow your knee to him as Savior. You'll be bowing your knee to him as your judge. Crowning him does not mean that we're making him king. Whether you believe it or not, he's already king. So when we say crowning him, what we mean is that we're confessing that he is king, that he is Lord. Romans chapter 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord or king, believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Crowning him is worshiping him as the only one worthy of worship. Many of us might be fond of saying that Jesus is our Savior. But the question remains, is, is he your Lord? Is he your King? And your life will bear testimony to that. A lot of people can run around and say, Jesus is my Savior. But their life will bear testimony of whether or not he's their Lord. Or secondly, will you kill him? To kill him means to eliminate him, to resist him, to ignore him, to, to take the place of him, to try to play God and control the situation. This is what Herod did, isn't it? Herod tried this move. And guess what we find out about Herod? Herod died. You know who doesn't die? God. <laughs> Herod wasn't God. Herod tried to play God, and he met the same end that every human is going to, to meet, death. So this doesn't seem like a, a great response to this God. In his rejection, in his unbelief, Herod experiences separation from God and the judgment of God. We need to be very clear that there are real, eternal consequences for how we respond to Jesus. This is not you do you and I'll do me. This is not if that works for you, good for you. That is not how the Bible presents it to us. The Bible presents it to us that there's only one way to be made right with God and it is through Jesus. 
So as we hear this, this great Christmas story and we hear these wise men bowing their knee, we also see this Herod who shows to us this response of a sinful heart who is in rebellion against God. That is as extreme as his response might be is indicative of a heart that is hard, a heart that does not desire God at all, a heart that is full of idolatry. Many don't seem to feel or know the full weight of the reality of the consequences of this question. And so this morning, we love to talk about Christmas. We love to talk about the joy and the hope and the love that Christmas is and brings, and we should. But we must say this, you must respond to that. We can't just sit here and say, that, that sounds great, Jesus, great. Okay, but what, how are you actually going to respond? And they say, well, I'm not sure yet. That's a response. Your indifference is a response. Don't think today that you're not called to response. You are called to respond. And we're inviting you today to respond in faith, to crown him, to see him as the savior you need. The savior who came, not, not as a threat to your, your way of life, but to give you life. Not, not someone who's trying to keep something from you. Someone who's trying to give you everything that you need. Everything you could ever need. So the question is, how will you respond to this Jesus this morning? Will you crown him or will you kill him? Let's pray. Father, God, we ask this morning that you would open the eyes of hearts to see Jesus as he is. Yes, he was a baby born in a manger. Yes, he was a, a young child in a house in Bethlehem that the wise men came to worship. God, we know that this son grew to be a man who was not just a baby, he was not just a child, but he was, in fact, and is the son of God the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. My sin. Those who sit here this morning. Those who sit here this morning who would respond in repentance and faith. So God, even, even now as we sit here in these moments, I pray for each one who may not know you today that they might just silently to you ask for your forgiveness of their sins, repenting and believing by faith in the work of Jesus, his perfect life, his death for their sin, his victorious resurrection that guarantees eternal life for all who would repent and believe. God, would you do a work now? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.